All right, let's get started here. This is Seth Partnow. You're listening to Call and Shots. I am joined today by Chris Harrington of the Daily Memphian, who we have just met or e-met or phone met for the first time about five minutes ago. So uh, uh, we're old friends now, and I figure we'll we'll uh, spend some time talking about the Grizzlies. Uh, Chris, how are you? Doing well. Are you, Seth? I'm doing quite well on a cold and icy day here in Milwaukee. Um uh, at risk of doing a terrible segue, not cold and icy, the Memphis Grizzlies this year. Um, <laughs> I'm very sorry, not sorry. Um, how much of what they've done this year would you say they expected coming into the season? I mean, I think it's hard to know what they expected. I mean, you're always, you know, players and front office people are always going to present, you know, a confident um, um, sense of things. I do know that they were they were quite adamant that w- when they made the trade this summer, you know, sending the draft week trade where they sent Jonas Valanciunas out, took Steven Adams in, you know, took on some dead weight, what, what for them ended up being dead weight salary and, and, and moved up in the draft. I mean, people saw that as a, you know, a win now move for New Orleans and you're willing to take a step back move for the Grizzlies. And people in the Grizzlies organization were quite adamant that they did not see that as a, a step back move, even in the short term. Um, that they did not see that as, as something that was going to change their fortunes going forward. They, they obviously liked the long term benefits of moving up in the draft, and they did not want to extend, you know, Jonas Valanciunas on a new deal for multiple years. But they did that in part because they thought it would it would help their team this season. And they've ended up being exactly right about the ways that that was going to happen in terms of reorienting the offense and shifting things around. So I think that they they felt like even with that trade, they were set up to build on what they did last season. Um, Whether they thought they were even going to have the third best record in the NBA, I I seriously doubt that. So let's let's talk about that trade because I when it happened, I I I caught some flack on Twitter from from Memphis fans. as well as others, by saying that I thought that that it was it was pretty possible that Stephen Adams would give them, you know, he might not match statistically what Valanciunas did, but in terms of of effectiveness, uh, he might he would match or exceed what what Valanciunas did, and and I think that that's that's fair to say that's happened, even if obviously the two players operate in different ways. Well, um, the, the the way my friend Matt Herdlicker phrased it, and I actually noticed that you, you you used his tweet in one of your columns at the time when you wrote about this. I remember this. He phrased it as a taking the training wheels off the offense, um, and and I can tell you that that is exactly. Well, they didn't use that that language. That is sort of the way the Grizzlies saw it in the sense of we're not going to run our offense as much. Now, they didn't really run it through the post traditionally as much as you would think with Alan Junis, but we're not not going to run as much offense through a true center. We want to shift shots to other players and shift the way our offense operates. They saw Adams as someone who could. They saw Adams as someone who who could who could help them shift the focus of their offense away from the center position, away from a traditional center in, in Valanciunas, um, and, and help them open up more for John Morant, for Desmond Bain, especially for Jared Jackson Jr. And at the same time, give them a physical presence that they, they felt like they still needed. I mean, the future may or may not be Jaron Jackson Jr. at center, but they wanted to, to gradually get there if they get there and still have a, a you know, a, a big, a big center in the mix. And I, I think with Adams is really one of, been one of the best stories of the, for the team because 
everything they could have reasonably hoped he would be, he has been. He he is Matt, he's been 100% of what they could have reasonably expected him to be. It didn't necessarily look like that the first two or three weeks of the season, but it but it's come around in a way where he has been everything that that they theoretically envisioned he would be. Uh, kind of last point on this uh, before we move on, I think we get, we we probably should have started with John Morant, but we'll finish on Stephen Adams first. Is I think that that his ability to operate with the ball sort of out of the high post has been something that's really helped a lot of the a lot of the other guys in the team sort of thrive. There's a lot of you know intelligent off ball movers on the team and kind of getting uh, you know you, you knew where Valanciunas was going to be you know and it was kind of taking space away from those cutters, but Adams has sort of uh, lifted the offense higher up the floor and allowed for some of that. Well, Adams has been great with Morant in a lot of the same ways that Valanciunas was great with Morant in the sense of setting the pick, crashing the boards, right? I I think John Morant creates a lot of offensive rebounding opportunities, and Adams has feasted on that. But he's also been, I think, less predictably, he's developed a great rapport with Desmond Bain. They run a lot of actions together. They play off each other well. Um, I haven't looked it up recently, but at one point this season, something like nearly 50% of Steven Adams' assists had gone to Desmond Bain. Like, it was a real, like, repetitive thing in the offense of those two guys hooking up. And I, I think the Steven Adams thing has been fascinating because, you know, I, when that trade was made, there the people thought, well, that's a downgrade offensively. Maybe it's an upgrade defensively, but it's a downgrade offensively. But what the Grizzlies have done... Steven Adams basically does three things really well in offense. He's great at setting screens. He's great at offensive rebounding. He is a sneaky good passer out of the high post. And if you look, and to me, they have isolated and maximized all three of those things. Steven Adams is leading the NBA. Whatever you think about the stat, he's leading the NBA in screen assists this season. He's leading the NBA in offensive rebound rate. And he's top 10 in the NBA among centers in assists per game. So they have isolated the three things he does well and maximized them to the benefit of the, 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 of the team-wide offense. And you look up and the Grizzlies somehow have the, the fifth-best offensive in the, offense in the NBA without being a particularly good shooting team. So I think the, the, the biggest reason why is, is John Morant. So let's, let's, let's talk about yep. him. He's, he's, he's a player that, that you know, I, I've long been a fan of, and I don't think I would have expected him to really vault not into just all-star level, but kind of all NBA consideration. Uh, if, if the voting was today, he, he would probably get some first-team votes. Um, what has, has led to that, and um, how much of this is him being uh, you know, ahead of schedule? Obviously, I think the team knew kind of right away that he was the, he was the centerpiece to build around, but um, maybe him arriving this early might have been a bit of a surprise. Well, he, he had sort of a down second season relative to expectations, which to me was not a huge surprise. I even wrote I wrote a column before year two um, saying people should, like, hold off until, until year three. Like if you look at the pattern of similar kind of point guards, your Derrick Rose and, and Russell Westbrooks and even Chris Paul and those players, the huge leaps happen more, more likely in year three than year two. And so I sort of cautioned people against the year two leap, you know, before his second season – I think, you know, some injury issues, some other stuff, the, their schedule, the Grizzlies and the Spurs were the two teams that had, because of all the COVID stuff, had just a brutal second-half schedule in terms of game frequency. And so I think he was a little worn down year two, but you saw him erupt in the play-in games and in the series against Utah. That was sort of preview of coming attractions. You saw him erupt as a player who who could just dominate 
um, um, you know, attacking the basket as, you know, as one of the great paint scorers at his size maybe we've ever seen. Um, it's been a long time since we've seen a guard that small score in the paint at the, the level he does. Um, and so I, I think what he did in the playoffs is a little bit of a, of, of a preview of coming attractions for what has happened this season. And, you know, I, I just think his, his, he's got such a, an elite combination of attributes. I mean, he's got the speed and the explosiveness and the shiftiness and the touch around the basket and the mentality. You know, there are issues, work in progress defensively and shooting, but in terms of his ability to get wherever he wants to get and the creativity and the athleticism to get shots off and make shots around and over defenders, I mean, he's just a special, he's a special talent, you know, in in terms of the ability, the ability to operate off the dribble and to score in the paint. And And I think we're seeing, you know, it's almost like, you know, six foot two Giannis as far as a paint scorer. I'm glad you used the word operate um, because one of the things that that sort of impressed me about him from from the jump is normally with a especially a smaller player who has you know that kind of explosiveness they tend to play at one speed and that speed is really fast and that's right. you know it's it's a one pitch pitcher it's a pretty good pitcher a pretty good pitch to have you can throw a 99 mile an hour fastball but the kind of his ability to you know sticking with the baseball analogy to have you know, off-speed pitches to to play with control of, of kind of pace and vary his speeds. That's been something that that I think has has been, you know, from from his first day in the league. Really, it's been something that's that's been very impressive. Yeah, I, I think there's two things that that I mean. It's one thing to have the the speed off the dribble, the handle, the explosiveness, the you know the, the touch. I think the two things he has that that you layer on top of that one is that sort of feel for the game and that 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 change of pace and that that ability to operate. The other thing is that even his athleticism, there's an elasticity to it um, that's more than just that's beyond explosive or quick. There's just a sense of there's a sense of contortion, you know, to the way he he, he operates in the paint and the way he can fill defenders around him and and move and get around or over them to get to certain spots. There's just He's got he's got an elite feel for the game offensively in all kinds of ways, but the sense of control in terms in terms in terms of controlling his body and controlling his speed, I, I think it's just it's just this it's sort of like you know it's like that aspect of genius that that's sort of the unteachable part of the game, right? It's it, it it's almost reminiscent of a of a great soccer player, just like like oh wow they just found they just found extra space they just found extra time. By by you know even if it's one half step one direction or a, a slight pivot or something like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it's you know, I mean, he's gotten some Iverson comparisons, and he's different in a lot of ways and similar in some ways. But the sense of like to me when I when you watched Iverson play, the sense that like it was like he was on ice skates and everyone else, ice skates and everyone else was in sneakers. There's a there's a little bit of that kind of thing to it. Just just the way he moves is just different from other players and it's different from other players who have his, you know, general makeup in terms of size and speed and athleticism. So I, I want to, I want to ask another style question and this is something that's, that's been interesting to me is he's a, he's a, you know, from a, you know, time on the ball and, and, you know, usage and stuff like that. He's a fairly ball dominant player, Yeah, but it doesn't just the, the experience of watching him. It doesn't seem like 
he's you know Luca or Trey or James Harden or one of those guys who is just who has is is just like conducting offensive possessions in the same way. Um, is is that something that that you would agree with that you yeah he, it, he gets it's off a, the ball. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because I did I did I did Zach Lowe's pod a few weeks ago and Zach said you know Zach compared him to to and I think in some ways more off court it's on court but he. You know, in terms of superstar comparisons, he was comparing them more to like Steph Curry and Tim Duncan than like, you know, your LeBrons and Jordans in terms of just sort of blending into a team concept. And I think that's as much an off-court sort of stylistic comp as an on-court one. But he made the point of, you know, he doesn't he doesn't have to dominate every possession. You know, he'll play off the ball. He's a great cutter. He's okay letting someone else take, you know, hand, you know handle possession. Not every, every possession is created and dominated by him which I think it feels true when you watch the game. But the point I made to Zach on that pod was, yeah, but he's like top five in the league in usage. Um, and so squaring like that usage number with the way it feels watching the team play, um, I do think there's a little bit of disconnect there. But I do think he is good. He is a threat off the ball. He's not a threat off the ball as a catch-and-shoot jump shooter at this point much. But he's good. he's a good cutter. He's a great. I, I joke. He's he, he's an elite two way lob lob player because there are a few players who are as good at both throwing them and catching them as him. Um, but he's a guy who who can who's willing to, to to play off the ball and can make himself a threat off the ball, even though he's not yet that much of a threat as a shooter. And I do think that's an important component to his game. And that's why you see them at times they can play him and Tyus Jones together. I don't love that look defensively, but you can put another ball handler out there and sort of take the load off of him, and it's not just him taking the play off. He's still part of the part of the play. Sure, I, an interesting comparison came into my mind when you were talking about sort of the the even though he's he's super high usage, letting other people play too, and he wasn't necess- didn't necessarily have the the scoring usage, but um, like Steve Nash is one of the like in Phoenix is one of the most ball dominant players we've ever seen. But it never felt like, like the other guys on the on Phoenix weren't weren't you know weren't getting to play too, and that you know even though stylistically they almost couldn't be more different, there there seems like there's a little bit of of that with everyone everyone feels a part of their offensive success. I, I think that's true relative to on court, but I think it also it's related to off court to the degree that there's a. John Morant has a comfort with his place at the top of the pecking order on the team, and the rest of the teammates have a comfort with him at the top of that pecking order. And there's never, from day one, like the moment he walked in as a rookie, there was like an acknowledgement of, oh, okay, this is the guy. We line up behind this guy. And there's never been any friction to that. I think, you know, I think at one point there, there was some friction in Atlanta around Trey Young in that. That may have worked out now, but at one point there was. I think earlier last season when they got off to the slow start. I think you've seen, you know, some friction in Dallas with Luca and, and, and you know, Porzingis. Porzingis is gone now. They haven't, and maybe this is, says a lot about job. Maybe it says a lot about the front office and how they built the team and the players they brought in. Maybe it's just a good fortune. But there's been zero friction from day one about John Morant's ascendance as the, as you know, that's the the sun around which around which the whole team orbits, sort of on and off the floor, and I think that sense of comfort has sort of made it easier in some ways for him to to blend in a little bit sometimes on the floor too. Is that at all to do with with kind of his his sort of off off the beaten path uh, ascent? It might be. I mean, it's it's sort of an odd thing with him. There's this 
you know, in some ways there's like a humble aspect of job, but in some ways there's like the opposite of that. There's a very, um, he's got a like sort of chip on her, chip on his shoulder kind of thing. He does have that sort of Jordan-esque wrinkle of inventing um, things to get mad about, um, whether it's like a random person on social media or, or you know, I, I, this season he seems really mad at the idea that he might win most improved player, like like that's beneath him. He, he, he tends to invent enemies to conquer, um, but that's like an outward-looking thing. That's not an inward thing relative to, to the team. I mean, I mean, he, he has, I think because... Because he's come from sort of that, that smaller town, smaller college background, he, I think that makes part of the reason he seems to be comfortable in the smaller market here. And maybe that aspect of it does play into his comfort sort of being just one of the guys, even though he's about to sign a Supermax contract this summer. So let's talk about the, let's, let's talk about the rest of the guys. Um, one of the, like, sort of... One aspect of the Grizz success is obviously they have a, a budding superstar player. The other key to me has been that they basically, aside from Zaire Williams getting kind of some developmental minutes, they play no bad players, and that's that. Like that's that's uh, that's a pretty good combination to build from. But um, well, they also play ten deep no matter what. Yep. And so, like Taylor Jenkins sticks to that at least in the regular season, and so. I mean, there have been times where, you know, last year Sean McDermott's in the lineup or Santi Aldama's in the lineup, because if he has to go 10, he will go 10. But they are deep enough. They've built a roster deep enough that he can go 10. And unless you have like four or five injuries, you go in 10 deep without playing bad players. And you, I mean, you mentioned, I mean, just guy, you mentioned one guy, Tyus Jones, who I think is, you know, one of the, one of the, the more solid, useful backup point guards in the league. Who's like you say, just a if you need to put another ball handle on the floor with Trey, but I would sorry with Jaw Trey. Um, So they have kind of been expecting um, Jaron Jackson Jr. to be that second star. I is it fair to say that hasn't totally happened yet? Um, What what has his progress been like this year? I think. Um, Jaron has been, I've described him as a bundle of attributes. They're still trying to, you're still trying to form into like a fully, fully formed basketball player. And there's been almost this sort of whack-a-mole kind of thing with the different parts of his game. You know, I, I think his rookie year, he was much better than most expected, certainly than I expected, at scoring in the paint um, as a 19-year-old um, on a team that played a little bit slower. I think year two, his his three point shooting exploded, and he had a historic three point shooting season for a you know a 20, 19, 20 year old big man. Um, I think this season he has made the defensive leap that everyone hoped w- would would happen. I think it's hard to be an elite defender when you're the youngest player, youngest rotation player in the league, which is what he was. It's hard to be a good defender when you're the youngest rotation player in the league, which is what he was as a rookie. I think. I think his defensive performance has caught up with his defensive um, talent this season, finally. But while that leap has happened, the shooting has been bad. And so this it's this it's this back and forth of, like, you know, seesaw kind of effect or whatever metaphor, you know, I'm, scram- I'm, I'm scrambling for. But I think Jaron still has all the tools to be not only an all-star, but like a top 20, top 25 player in the league. He has not put all those pieces together. He is still very young. He's still younger than John Morant. He is younger than Desmond Bain. I think he's the kind of player who they always knew was going to take longer to develop. 
I had John Hollinger on my pod a couple weeks ago, and you know John was part of the team that the group that drafted Jaron, and John made the point that when we took him, we thought he would have the longest runway of any of the players in the top of that draft. That it would take longer to get to the you know the, the takeoff spot for Jaron than it was going to for DeAndre Ayton or Luka Doncic or Trey Young or any of these guys. Um, so you know at what where do where you know at, at the point that it all comes together, what does it become? I think that's a real question. I think the shooting this season is is going to ultimately be out of character, both inside and outside the arc. Like, I don't think, I think Jaron is a better, I don't know if he's a 39% shooter at high volume like he was his second season, but I don't think he's going to be a 31% three-point shooter, which is what he's been this season. I, I think that, that'll that even out to a positive area. And I also don't think, you know, he was a 55% inside the arc shooter his first two seasons, and it's below 50% this season. I, I, I think that's going to come around too. So I'm a big believer in Jaron Jackson as an elite defensive player who will be a good secondary offensive player and all an all defensive team member who gets you 20 points a game, but is not, you know, but is your second or third best offensive player. I, I think that's what he can be. And I think he's a good chance to be that. He is certainly not that now. Sure. No, that's it. Again, when you're talking about the second star, you, you, especially when you have the, the sort of the main offensive driver that does give you a little bit more sort of freedom in, in terms of the guy not having to be, you know, a, you know, a high volume, high efficiency score. He can be a a good complementary score, and as you say, an elite defender. Which um, I think that's still getting a little ahead of of of, of where he is. Um, but he's certainly been better this year. I mean, the the biggest, from my standpoint, one of the biggest problems his first three years was he just fouled all the time, um, and he's he's cleaned that up a lot this year. Yeah, his foul rate has gone down. You throw away the third season where he played eleven games. Yeah. I mean, you'll you you see a a pretty steady downward trajectory year year to year to the third year on the foul rate. I think the rebounding obviously still is a big weakness of his. I think the last two or three weeks, Jaron's defense and the team's defense has slid a little bit. But I think up until then, for most of the season, I, you know, I, it's funny. I, I, early in the season when his shooting was so terrible, I was like the only person, I think, noting how good he'd been defensively. It's one of these things where people have sort of zoomed past me because I was never in the like defensive player of the year thing with him. I was like, maybe he'll be second team all defense. Um, but, you know, when the Grizzlies, three or four weeks ago, when the Grizzlies sort of really got into the national conversation, you know, the, the, the ESPN game went over, over in New York and a lot of this, you started to see him pop up. You know, I, I think if you look at, I don't care about the betting stuff so much, but when you look at that stuff in terms of like odds for defensive player of the year, he went from not on the board at all to suddenly like, you know, in the top five or six on that. I think he's legitimately been one of the five or six best defensive bigs in the league this year. And I would put it in that, I would frame it that way. Um, I think if you look at, you know, not only his defensive activity numbers in terms of steals and blocks and deflections, you look at the on-off stuff um, for the team. You look at some of the you know the stats relative to, to 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 how teams shoot. You know when he's on the floor versus off the floor. When he's the primary defender. When he's not, he pops up in the same broad group as your Evan Mobley's and Jared Allen's and and Gobert's and those guys on the season. That's that's certainly encouraging. Um, no, I, I think that, that he's he's definitely always been someone who who you like. Well, that was the that was the hope, right? Is the like a mobile, all court defender who can shoot also, um, and and as you said, like 
parts of that have come at any one time. It's just a matter of getting them all on the floor at the same time. I think part of the story with him offensively this season, I think the three-point shooting is just, you know, three-point shooting tends to have variants. We'll, we'll see where that settles. But his, in terms of his two-point shooting being down, I think, I think he's being forced into too many tough shots. And if you look at the stats, it, I think it backs up a little bit in the sense that his usage is way up relative to the first two seasons. And then the percentage of his baskets that are assisted is way down. He is being asked to create more for himself. And a lot of that has been creating tough shots, like off the dribble. I mean, you know, trying to drive from the three-point line in against tight defense. To me, they have not gotten him enough. He has not been the finisher enough. He's not been set up enough. Um, and to me, that's been one of the problems. They're asking him to do too much as a creator offensively. I mean, that's, a, that, that's sort of an interesting conundrum, right? Uh, is, 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 you know, they're like... Being able to be a creator is is a huge part of being right. a, you know a primary or secondary creator. So it's like balancing. He's not doing this well right now versus, but we want him to do this. Um, and it seems like like with how successful they've been as a team, they kind of have the luxury of of playing through that a little bit. Yeah, no, I mean I do think self creation is one of the things that's most important for his ceiling. I just think for this season alone, I think it explains a lot of why his shooting, inside the arc shooting, is down. Sure. He's not getting the easy, like, jaw sets you up at the rim kind of stuff. And, in fact, one of the things that's happened this season is with their substitution patterns, he actually doesn't play with jaw that much, especially relative to what you would think, and especially doesn't play with him that much at center. And so when Jared, Jared starts games at the four, he's mostly playing off the ball as a spacer with, you know, a job, a job, Brent, Stephen Adams as sort of the, the core fulcrum of the offense. They bring Jaron out early, and when they bring him back in at center, it's usually with Tyus Jones with other bench units. And so I think where you're going to get the most, the most, the, the highest level interaction between John Morant and Jaron Jackson Jr. is going to be when Jaron's at center. And the amount of minutes they play with Jaron at center with Ja at point guard, it's actually fairly low. That's been one of like the sort of micro criticisms I've had of the team this year. Sure, that actually leads me kind of into one of the topics I wanted to, to talk about is, you know, the, when when all of us, you know, were doing our trade deadline previews, there's a lot of I had Danny Larue on the pod uh, probably about ten days before the trade deadline, and we're we're like, you know, who's a who's a sneaky interesting team looking to to you know. Um, to, to add at the deadline would be Memphis. Um, and it was, you know, partially because they have, you know, they have good draft capital and obviously all of the, and a lot of good young players on, on solid contracts. And um, they didn't do so. And it's understandable why, especially when you saw, like, how much teams seem to want for any even, like, borderline useful player. Um, but that, that a secondary perimeter creator does seem like the biggest kind of lack for them right now. Yeah, I mean, they've played most of this season without Dylan Brooks. And so one of the odd things about the Grizzlies this season is the, the third best record in the league. I want to say it's like eight games that they've had their nominal starting lineup together on the floor. And so they haven't been able to get a good sense of what their team really looks like with John Morant, Desmond Bain, Dylan Brooks, Jaron Jackson, and then, you know, Stephen Adams. But it's a long-term question. It's more of a John Morant, Desmond Bain, Dylan Brooks question. Um, Bain and Brooks are, are good enough that it's you know, it's not going to be easy to improve on those players. But if you think about raising the ceiling of the team, improving on one of those players seems to be like maybe the best way to do it. Um, 
but find, get, finding a wing that's going to be a higher ceiling guy than those two, and certainly more of a more of a high level offensive creator. I mean, that's not hard. That's not going to be easy to do. And, and if anything, the Grizzlies may have a better chance of growing that player. I think they hope maybe Zaire Williams down the line. They may have a better chance of growing a player like that than than, than finding them on the trade market. That's sort of been one of my. We haven't really had a chance to answer it this season because he's been out. But that's sort of. Um, been one of my longer term questions about the Grizz is uh, especially, you know, the last couple of years before Jaw kind of ascended to being, you know, a, a mid high 30s usage player. Um, he was the guy who ended up like soaking up a lot of those possessions and he's certainly willing to do so, but he, he's very willing to do so. Yes, talking about Dylan yes, Brooks. Yes, he's very ex- extremely yes. willing. Yes. So, so Dylan Brooks, here's what you need to know about Dylan Brooks. Each and each, both, each of the past two seasons, not this season, each of the past two seasons, he led the Grizzlies in field goal attempts and the entire NBA in personal fouls. Dylan Brooks does a lot of stuff all the time <laughs> on the basketball floor, a lot of fouling, a lot of talking, a lot of shooting, just a lot, a lot all the time. And in modulating him on, just modulating him like in life, I think is one of the big challenges for the Grizzlies. But modulating that offense, um, you know, this season he's only played 21 games, but when he has played, his usage rate is near 30. And the gap between how much he does offensively and how well he does it, it's a fairly substantial gap. And so modulating that in the context of trying to elevate Bain and elevate Jaron Jackson and have John Morant as the clear-cut, you know, engine of your team – that's a real trick, and it's a trick they're not going to be able to solve until probably early to mid-March. No, that's, I mean, that, that was going to be my question, is, is, like, he's a guy who, who like, there's, there's definite things that, that he adds, and you can see many ways in which a player of his sort of, um, you know, if you're going to archetype players, there's a lot of, like, playoff nemesises, nemesi, whatever the word is, from years past that have kind of had a similar similar kind of profiles to him, but they're not guys who've been like the, the big usage guy. It's, it's sort of that Mario Ellie, Robert Ori kind of tough, defensive, hit a big shot kind of guy. Um, and, and sort of getting him to move into um, and being willing to move into a more right. of a, a tertiary role. That seems like it's, it's, it's a good problem to have, but it is a, it's, it is a challenge for them. Yeah, they they need a Dylan Brooks who takes fewer but better shots, um, and that you know is a better spot up three point shooter, which I think there's a potential there. I mean, who knows who can say? But if you, if you improve the shot selection, if he can accept being likely a fourth option in the offense, and the guy who's going to guard the other team's best player, um, which is what he has been, I mean that's been his real calling card. I mean, players ranging from Trey Young to, to LeBron James on the side spectrum, he has been the primary defender. And the thing about Dylan, if you go back to the last season, he was terrible offensively in the first half of the season. Like, really, he had the frequency of his terrible shooting games was pretty, pretty astounding. It was like half the time he shot below 35%. I remember, I don't remember the numbers, but I looked them up. But then, second half of last season, he was a lot better and he was spectacular in the playoffs, um, in the, po- in the play in and the playoffs. Um, he was just great. He averaged 25 points a game in that Utah series on so good shooting numbers. Um, Donovan Mitchell scored on him, but he made Donovan Mitchell work for those shots. Um, played great defense on Steph Curry in the play-in. 
Um, it, feel, it feels to me like Dylan Brooks is a player who's going to be more missed, who, whose impact is going to be felt more in playoff basketball than in regular season basketball. Obviously, the Grizzlies have the record they have with very little Dylan Brooks this season, and so you can't say he's been all that missed in the regular season. But when you think about projecting into the playoffs, I don't know if you want Zaire Williams starting a playoff series, right? I, I think Dylan Brooks, I think you're going to feel that impact more in, in postseason at this point. I mean, I think, I think it's fair to say you do, you, you do know you do not want that. Yeah, that's, I mean, you know, it's not and it's not a slight necessarily on Zaire Williams. It's, it's rookies tend to not be ready for that. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm glad you mentioned the playoffs because I think that's the sort of the next natural way to go. And it's you know probably coming out of the All Star break, thinking about the playoffs is uh, and not just thinking about let's get into the playoffs, but like how are we going to do in the playoffs? How far can we go? I think that's a that's a nice position for them to be in, and perhaps slightly unexpected. Um, what should reasonable expectations be heading towards the postseason? Like, what's um, a, you know... I, I think, so broadly speaking, I'm interested in the specifics of this. I'm interested in your opinion, actually, on, on the topic that's been popping up today and yesterday on this. But broadly speaking, I would say they're going to be the third seed or maybe even the second. They're game and a half behind Golden State as play resumes. It's hard to see them falling um, with the gap they have. So they'll be like the second or third seed. I think when you're a second or third seed... You have to, it would be a disappointment to lose in the first round. I don't think it would be at all a shock for this team to lose a first round playoff series. If they play a Denver team that's suddenly healthy with Jamal Murray and, and, and Michael Porter Jr. and Nikola Jogic, like they could, they could lose that series easily. They could lose against anybody in the first round. I don't think, I think people should be prepared for that from a Grizzlies perspective to lose a first round playoff series. But even though it would not be unexpected, it would be a disappointment if you're the two or three seed. I think I would put the bar of expectation as getting to the second round of the playoffs. I think even if they passed Golden State and got up to the two, to have the third youngest roster in the NBA and lose a second round series, you know, to, to, to a team like the Warriors, to me, I would not call a disappointment. So to me, the bar for them in terms of success or, or disappointment is getting to the second round of the playoffs. But I, even, even if they make it to the two seed, I don't take that for granted that they get there. Um, but, I was going to go into something else, but this is your show, so I'll, I'll stop. No, please. Well, I, I'm interested in I'm interested in your opinion about this. I, I wrote about this a little bit in a mailbag column I did this week, and our, our mutual friend Matt Moore was sort of tweeting about it today. Is the Grizzlies' offense going to translate to the playoffs? They have this interesting – they're fifth in the league offensively, but they are tw- – where are they at? They I are – I think it was 23rd in the half court. Yeah, 23rd in the half court. They, they are – they're 24th in effective field goal percentage. Their offense is built so heavily on offensive rebounding, on creating turnovers, on getting in transition. How much of a danger is that to not translating into playoff basketball? My my takeaway has been I think the offensive rebounding, I, I think I don't know, I don't know if there's that much difference between regular season and playoff basketball in terms of offensive rebounding, but in terms of generating turnovers and being able to play in transition at the level they do, something like twenty percent of their possessions are in transition. To me, that that's much much harder to, to to translate from regular season to playoff basketball. I mean, that that'll be interesting because I think that there's sort of two the, the transition. There's sort of two things. I think playing off live ball turnovers and getting into transition, playing off of steals. Like, yeah, you're going to be playing against teams that take care of the ball better. Right. Um, I think that part of the reason. So there's two things that sort of happen. Why kind of rebounding transition drops in the playoffs. One is, again, you're playing against better teams, so they take better shots, so they have better floor balance when they shoot. But it's also teams kind of, they start to grip tighter a little bit and sort of 
almost choose not to because you do you, tur- you do turn the ball over a little bit more if you play in transition. Um, now, overwhelmingly, the trade-off is worth it in terms of of getting you know more efficient offense for at the cost of a few extra turnovers. But you see it all the time that teams, even as as good as as well served as they would be to keep running, just kind of like pull the reins back a little bit. I don't see that happening with a with a team that you know like. Yeah, for as much as we praise Joff for, for you know being able to vary speeds, I don't think he's gonna play I don't think he's gonna wanna play slow just because it's the playoffs. So I I, th- I do think that we, we can expect some drop off in transition, but I I'm not necessarily sure it'll be stark. What it what will still be a problem though, I think, is is just the half court offense. Right. Because, you know, they I mean, they their kind of shooting is what it is. Um, you know, they their best lineups generally are going to include one non-shooter in Adams, um, one kind of questionable and or reluctant shooter in 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 Jaw, and then you know, um, Bain is obviously a, a you know a high-level shooter, but the other two players, um, assuming one of them is Jaron Jackson, he's been up and down, and and whoever kind of is at the three. Um, None of their options are are particularly um, reliable outside threats, so I do think that that there is going to be a spacing problem. Um, on the other hand, like there was a spacing problem against Utah last year, and Morant was at the rim every play anyway. So um, I don't know. I, I I don't know. I don't really know what to expect. I, I think from a from a you know a baseline standpoint, I think that you're right. Like a a success would be a hard-fought six or seven-game loss to most likely Golden State just by the way the seedings are playing out. Right. I, I do think there is there is some level of upside to be a better shooting team than they have been, and that's because Dylan Brooks has been most, missed most of the season. You don't think of him as a good shooter, but relative to some of the other options, you know, if you're playing Kyle Anderson or, you know, Zaire Williams is still under 30% on the season, Dante Melton is, you know, there is an upside there offensively I think in half court basketball being meaningful offensively with Brooks, and I think Jaron, Jaron's been up and down, but there's been the ups too. I mean, I think he was something like 38, 39 percent from three in February. He was the same in November. He cratered in December, January. Like, which Jaron are you going to get? There's still the Jaron Jackson Jr. of year two where he shot 39 percent from three on the super high volume. I think, I mean, that player is still in there somewhere. And I think that's like you, you don't need. I don't nef- even necessarily think you need like thirty-eight percent from Jackson and Brooks. I think the uh, you know we were just talking about uh, Dylan Brooks's willingness to put up shots. Right. Um, if, if you have those guys who are you know making enough shots and they are they are they are catching and shooting every time they are left open, that has a way of creating spacing for you. Like almost regardless of of how many go in, as long as it's you know, within a, within a certain range of acceptability. So that's, I think that's almost as much where the upside is than just the, the kind of the percentage. I mean, like Desmond Bain is going to have gravity. Um, and if, if, but if Jackson and, and, and Brooks are shooting decently and shooting a lot, they too will have gravity, even if not quite as much. And, you know, you start to pull two and three guys out of the way, and now um, you, you have the best, you know, penetrating guard in the league. That's, a, that's not a bad uh it's not a bad recipe. Yep. Um, what do you think about like defensively in, in in the postseason? This is this is a part where where you know the almost the no bad players approach I think kind of 
kind of comes back to bite a little bit. I'm not bite, but it's like, you know, become because playoff rotations are shorter and you're playing against better competition. The the guys who are not who are you know good like the tenth or twelfth best at their position in the regular season are suddenly you know well below average against playoff competition. And so how how are you foreseeing their their defense kind of holding up in in a playoff setting? Well, I mean to me this is another thing where the absence of Dylan Brooks. I mean the the. It's not surprising the Grizzlies are ninth defensively. That's sort of, that's actually below what they were last season. But last season, to me, their defense was built primarily on the interplay of Dylan Brooks and Kyle Anderson in a starting lineup. That was the backbone of their defense last season. And this season, Dylan Brooks has played 21 games, and Kyle Anderson is coming off the bench and playing, you know, not nearly as well as he did last season. And so for them to still have a top 10 defense in the absence of that, it's been more of a Jaron Jackson Jr., Stephen Adams kind of thing. Um, I think the potential is still there when you get you, – if you look at the numbers this season, and there, it's a small sample, but if you look at the numbers with Dylan Brooks and Jaron Jackson both on the floor, like the defense is astounding. It's pretty great with that together. And so to me, that's got to be the foundation of, their, of your defense in the playoffs is those two guys, and we, we just haven't seen it. Um, but I think one of the things they have going for them is versatility. I mean, they can play big with, with Jaron as you know, this at the four and Stephen Adams at the five, and they've also shown with Jaron's foul rate coming down that they can they can play with Jaron at center, and so I think they have a lot of versatility defensively. I think Kyle Anderson gives them versatility defensively. I'm not sure how much he's going to play in the playoffs, but I think they have a lot of tools and a lot of versatility to match up different ways defensively. To me, the biggest the biggest question is more John or is sort of a John Morant question is how much how exploitable is he going to be defensively in, in the playoffs? I think against Utah. It was a problem, but it was exacerbated by the Jonas Valanciunas problem and the Grayson Allen problem. I think those third three players in particular were sort of getting hunted defensively by Utah. I think the Grizzlies could put a team on the floor this this time around with fewer with fewer sort of flammable flammable areas on the court. It's sort of if you're if teams are running a pick and roll at uh, at Morant and you have you have you have uh, Jaron Jackson able to to you know deter the ball hand a little bit more it does give him that extra beat or two to get to get navigate the screen that maybe with uh with Valanciunas playing you know fully in drop coverage wouldn't have been an option right so I, I think I think the toolkit's a little bit better than they had last season in the playoffs sure let's so um speaking of the toolkit I think we I think we've we've gone for like almost 45 minutes without mentioning Taylor Jenkins and you know uh, full disclosure I worked with Taylor for a year um, and I was, I'm not at all surprised that, that, that he is turned into a, a, a really good coach. I had, I had a, 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 an analytics staffer at, a, at another team a couple weeks ago, like text me and say, uh, um, talk me out of, out of uh, arguing that Taylor Jenkins is the best coach in the NBA. I, you know, that's, you know, that's, I, that might be a little too far, but still that's the kind of, he's, he's certainly, I think, done an excellent job. What? What? Well, what's wild is the coach of the two of the biggest candidates in the coach of the year race may be Taylor Jenkins and the guy he replaced. Yeah, JB Biggerstaff. That's a fair point. Um, but where was I? I, I um, so what? What is he? What, what have you seen about it? How how he's been able to get? What, the, what is a pretty young team still playing at this, this high level? I mean, he's someone, and this is not unusual among coaches, but he's someone who talks relationships first and talks X's and O's second. 
And I think in talks, you know, culture, quote unquote, culture first and the rest second. I think he is he has fostered a good relationship with his players and gotten his players to buy in. It's one of those things where, you know, at post game press conferences, you'll you'll hear him talk. And then you'll hear the players come out and they'll use the, the exact same language. They're basically like, you know, repeating what, what he had said to them before. So he, he has got them buying in to thinking about to, to each other and to the team and to thinking about things the way he's thinking about it. Um, when I talk about the, the no friction, you know, with John Morant, I'm sure it won't always be this way for Taylor Jenkins, but so far with the young team, like it's been that way. He's had pretty much total buy in, it seems. Um, and I think, you know, his philosophy about how he wants to play, I, you know, has not come totally to fruition. He would like to be shooting better from three-point range than this. So that's the one area where, you know, his philosophy and the execution hasn't quite matched up. But he wants to play fast. He wants to pressure the rim. Um, He wants to be a good defensive team. All those things have come together. And it's sort of, you know, it's hard to argue with their performance. I mean, I I think, uh, you know, to me, coaching can be somewhat hard to evaluate from the outside. Um, But... I mean, the performance has been what it's been, both in terms of the, the, the just the general feel of the team and in terms of their performance on the floor. I, I thought it was interesting that you said that, like, kind of the language that the that the players use, like, kind of mimics his. I think that is that is a good sign. I mean, I again, when when I, I worked with him when he was in an assistant coaching role, and <clears throat> excuse me, um, the. I guess the the overwhelming things that I would have said would be someone who is uh, very organized, very detail oriented, but not in like a, not in a, uh, in a sort of a in your face, show me your TPS reports kind of way. Right. And, and it does seem like that, that, that is the sort of thing that carries over in terms of, of everyone being pretty clear on what we're doing to the point where if you ask them, they will all tell you the same thing about what we're doing. I think that's a, that is a you know another kind of NBA buzzword, which is more you know talking about coaches in front offices is alignment, but that's like just the fact that everyone's using the same descriptors of stuff in, indicates to me a team that's that is really all on the same page. Yep. Um, and I guess speaking of alignment, it also it also seems like um, there there's a, a decent amount of of. Uh, working well with others between him and the front office in terms of, of getting, you know, younger players, you know, I can't imagine that, that he thinks Zaire Williams is the, is the best of his wing options right now, just for winning games tonight, but he still seems very willing to, to, you know, use those minutes. As, as yeah, sort of no, I mean, I think that the Zaire Williams thing has been a very clear sort of organizational commitment from the jump. And it's one that's, that's been paying off. I, I think you've seen an in-season improvement from him. That's 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 pretty um, persuasive. Um, but it was but it was there from the beginning. When when they drafted Zaire Williams, my my expectation from the outside was, well, you know, you probably won't see him till the second half of the season. I thought it'd be more like Marcus Moody or sorry Moses Moody in um, in Golden State, right? Um, and instead, he was he's been in the rotation from 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 day one, and. And in some ways, I mean, I've questioned the degree of, you know, the role he has ahead of someone like Anthony Melton. Um, to me, I, it's been questionable relative to this season. But they have a long-term commitment to Williams as someone they've, they identified. I don't think they didn't make that, that draft. They didn't make that trade to get him specifically. They made that trade before the draft to get up to that level of, of slot. So it wasn't about Zion Williams specifically. 
but he is one of the players that they they were honed in on, and they have a real belief in him long term as the kind of you know big wing that they feel like they need and they think he can develop into. And they have committed to rotation minutes for him from day one this season. And early the season, it was pretty bad. Like he was probably one of the one of the least effective rotation players in the NBA. Maybe the first month or two of the season. Um, he missed about a month with an ankle injury. Since he's come back, he's been much better on both sides of the ball. Still probably has not been as good as DeAnthony Melton, who's, who's been starting above. But they have made what's clear a long-term organizational commitment to him. And it's it, and to your point, it does not feel like something the front office is imposing on Taylor Jenkins. It feels like the organization, by which I mean the coaching staff and the front office together, or sort of united in, in in believing in this commitment and following you know the steps that they think they need to go through to get to where they want to get with them, and so I do think it's a perfect sign of sort of that alignment. Um, I guess that that leads me to kind of a place where we should finish up. I mean, it's it is for a team that has been as good this year and has you know as much hope heading into the playoffs. It does feel a little strange. Like, okay, what happens after this year? But at the same time, they're so early in their their kind of competitive cycle that that it's it's hard not to not to uh, uh, you know address that. Obviously, like decisions that that have to be made in the off season will be um, impacted by how how they perform and individuals perform in the playoffs. But yeah. as of right now, what would you say that they are kind of what where are the where are the eyes of the organization on how to move forward from the season? Well, I mean, I, I, I borrowed a line from John Lennon earlier this season in writing that, you know, sometimes building a contender is what happens while you're busy making plans to trade for a star. And so they they have – they still have as good of a um, sort, sort of foundation to make a major trade as, as most teams in the league. Um, they're, they're plus three, I think, on first-round picks going forward. Um, they have more decent young players on good contracts, so they can fit in a rotation. They've got players that you can make foundations of trades, you know, from a contract contractual standpoint. I think, you know, if the right opportunity comes up, they are prepared to strike. But I also think they know that they have to be prepared for that opportunity to never come. And can you build a contender when that opportunity never comes? And I think that's where, you know, the internal... The, the evaluation and development that they've shown with a Desmond Bain, with a Brandon Clark, with a Dylan Brooks, who was a second-round pick, with a Zaire Williams who's coming along. Um, I think, you know, I think if the right deal is there this summer, if suddenly a Jalen Brown deal pops up or a Pascal Siakam deal pops up or something, I could see them pounce on something. But I think they are prepared to just build, keep building internally with what they have and obviously that will force some decisions along the way. You can't keep all 10 of these players together. Um, but I think they feel like they're in a position to keep growing internally if they have to. Um, the big thing, obviously, is going to happen this summer is going to be John Morant. I mean, if he makes an all-NBA team, which seems highly likely at this point, he might even be first-team all-NBA. He was almost He's very likely to be one, one of the all-NBA teams. Then he'll get a $200 million Supermax contract this summer, and they'll have to figure out how you build a team when you factor that into the mix. But I don't think this is a team that's going to be desperate to make a big move this summer, but I think they'll be prepared for one if the opportunity pops up. I mean, it's, it's a good problem to have, to have a guy, yep, Supermax. Yep. So it's, it's, uh, I think, I think uh, any organization would be very happy to, be in, in, to have that problem of having to, how do we, how do we plan around our, uh, our top 10 player? Who's, right. <laughs> like, um, 
The, the one interesting question I have is, or a question that, that, I, that what you just said like draws out of me is, um, it almost seems like they've made those decisions more complicated than they might otherwise be by being so good this year. Like, you know, if, if they had been just, you know, they were a fifth seed now and have had a nice season and had progressed along kind of normally, um, then, yeah, well, sure, a guy comes available, we make that move. But it's almost like we've been so good and the chemistry has been so good. And, and you do wonder if, if that kind of, if there's a, a, a worry about being, I don't know if, if worry is the right word, but how, but weighing like the burden hand versus, okay, but we know we need to get better. So let's go, let's throw a bunch of stuff and go get Jalen Brown. I mean, Jalen Brown is, is actually such a perfect fit for what right. they need that like, I think you do that. But I mean, so maybe someone who's more kind of positionally um, and skill set wise, like not quite perfect, like, like Siakam, I guess would be, would be an example of that. Um, do you almost talk yourself out of that by by how good you've been this year? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the option to them of building, I don't know what makes a contender, what doesn't. They have the third best record in the league right now. It feels like even though no one really expects them, you know, to get to a conference finals or beyond, I feel like when you have the third best record in the league with twenty games to go, like sort of like you have to think in those terms. Um, that they built that relatively organically. I mean, they've done it with some trades and some whatever, but it's mostly been, you know, drafting, acquiring, and developing young players. I think you have to leave open the possibility that you may get there, you know, you may get there without that, or that when you get to the point that you're making the, the sort of the final piece deal, it's not necessarily, you know, like, you know, look, look at Milwaukee, right? I mean, you know, Giannis, Giannis was, was homegrown. Chris Middleton was basically homegrown. They traded for him as something he was not and developed him into what he became. He was he was a throw-in, essentially. In, in right, the, right. Yeah. So so you look at you know, a Giannis and a, and a Middleton as a foundation. That's essentially a homegrown, home-developed foundation. Um, and then a Drew Holiday. But a Drew Holiday is one, you know, trading for Drew Holiday is not, I don't, I think trading for Jalen Brown might, in, in some the, theoretical exercise, may be a bigger deal than that was, right? In terms of what you have to give up. I, I mean, I think that's that, that's more about Jalen Brown's age than I think. Right. I think. No, no, I, I I agree. But I'm just talking, I'm talking about the magnitude yeah. of the trade when right, it right, happened. Right. But it's still the case of Milwaukee got to a certain point before they made a deal like that, right? They they grew a contender with, before they made that kind of trade, and so I think the Grizzlies have to look at themselves on a path of maybe we reach a point where we where we need to do a deal like that. But we can get to the point where where we're we're in the contending matrix without it, um, and so in a lot of ways, I think the, the Milwaukee example is an example the Grizzlies would look to. And in, in a lot of ways, Ja, ja Morant, Giannis, Giannis Cooper, of course, is sort of similar in terms of like you know, you know, not the defensive player Giannis is obviously, but in terms of being a paint-based scorer that you build an offense around. Um, they're two of the three best paint scorers in the league, and so that is sort of a foundation in a small market, and then building around from there. I think that's a, I mean, that's a, you know, you mentioned that losing in the first round would be a disappointment. It would be a disappointment in its own right, but I think that the information that they would gain, because, you know, what you're talking about, about being a contender, like, once you flip the switch from, from you know, this is an interesting team building thing. It, maybe this is, this, like, my philosophy on team building, but I think this, this holds, is that the interesting flip between, okay, we're, we're getting to be a pretty good team versus we're getting to be a contender, and at that point, it's not about acquiring good players. It's about acquiring guys 
who perform well in the second round or later in the playoff. And so getting to the second round and, you know, now I guess if you end up playing a healthy Denver team, that's functionally the equivalent, but still getting, getting the, getting to see what guys look like against a, a, a full strength golden state team would be just so important for, you know, making those decisions going forward, which of these guys can hack it and which of these guys might we might need to improve that spot or he's a good player, but he's, his his ability at that level is questionable enough that he becomes someone we're more willing to deal for those upgrades. Yeah, no, I, I think I think this 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 spring and summer may bring a lot of clarity to the Grizzlies. Well, cool. Uh, I've 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 kept you for about an hour. I appreciate uh, appreciate your time. Um, anything else you think that uh, you think that uh, you know should be aware of about you know the Grizzlies this season or or kind of anything else around the team? Um, it's it's. It's, they've, they've been one of my favorite league pass watches. Um, I think the only rotation player we have not mentioned is Brandon Clark, who's having a heck of a season coming off the bench. And under the radar is up for a early extension this summer along with Ja. Um, what, 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 what kind of number do you think is a fair number for, for Brandon Clark this summer? Oh, man, I, 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 I have, like, Brandon Clark is such a weird player. I know. To evaluate. I almost um, think he's a guy, unless you get a really good deal for this summer, it may be worth planning it a year and going into restricted free agency on him. I mean, that's that's sort of, especially with bench players, that's sort of always my yep. my my preference. I think teams tend to make mistakes going early on those kind of players much more than the other way around, um, much more than they get like a like a screaming deal. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what's a fair number? I don't know. Um, I, I, you do start to get antsy when you start to when you start to give bench players like you know, three and four years at, at, at numbers in the teens. Right. So that's that would be my... And is you know, there a future where he's not a bench player? Is he the four and Jaron the five in your starting lineup? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's ever going to be the, the case. Yeah, I mean, that's the, you're, you, you become pretty light on rebounding and ball handling and, and maybe even shooting at that point. Right. For as athletic as he is, he is, he is a, a, again, just a, just a, a almost a... Almost a throwback player to the to the kind of like energy bigs we used to see in like the you know the the late nineties and early two thousands that there aren't really that many examples of guys who are high level performers maybe like I don't know in a slightly different style maybe like Jared Vanderbilt is 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 kind of a similar and, and like you know and and Vanderbilt works because he's playing against the best you know best shooting big man in the league. So, you know, if, if Jaron Jackson becomes that, then maybe that's tenable. But I don't know. Um, as, <laughs> as I kind of work this through in my, on my head as we're talking right. about it. Um, no, that's a, I mean, he's like, I mean, he's, he's also sort of the perfect example of why uh, draft Twitter loves Memphis. Because um, he's a guy who a lot of like, you know, traditional NBA scouts is like, well, what, what does he do? What, what role does he fill? And those all the questions we just asked. And. And Memphis sort of looked at it and kind of the metrics when he was in the draft looked at it and said, I don't know what he does, but he's good. He so, catches uh, lots of alley passes yeah. to John Morant. That's one yeah. thing he does. Yeah. No, it's just he's, he's athletic and he, he can score on little flip shots and he gets catches his lobs and, and, and good things happen when he's on the court. I don't know. What else do you need? Um, and it seems like they're, they, from a front office standpoint, they have been, you know, the John, the John Conchars and the Xavier Tillmans and, and the Anthony Meltons. Or are all guys who sort of fit that that mold of we're not exactly sure what this guy is, but he's good. Yep. Um, 
Well, cool. I, um, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, we'll have to do this again uh, either, either in or, or shortly before the playoffs as we get a better sense of, of, of uh, who, who they're going to play. But I really appreciate you coming on, and uh, uh, really good to finally get a chance to talk to you. Yeah, cool. Thanks for having me, Seth. All right. Uh, thanks a lot, everyone. I am back tomorrow with oh, I was Stephen No uh, to talk about another surprise team this year, the Chicago Bulls. So uh, join me then. Thanks a lot, everyone. <laughs>